really glad you're here this morning, and if you are a first-time or an infrequent visitor, um, I want to make a special little pre-sermon announcement for your benefit. Money is always a sensitive issue to everybody. And especially when it comes to religion because of all the hucksters and the scammers and everything else that are out there on the TV waves and airwaves and everything else, I certainly understand that. And that's just one of the reasons why I am always, uh, we always in for the past 24 years have really low-keyed the whole aspect of giving to the church and all. But obviously we survive on that. And we're doing very well, by the way, just uh, for the record. But if you have not been here ever especially, because I am finishing up a three-part series this morning about finances and giving to the church, you could very easily think, oh, brother, you know, I finally come out to church. We're going to visit this place, and they're talking about money, and I want to get into my wallet and my purse. I've been the pastor here for 24 years, and this will be the third time that I have preached, other than a fleeting moment here and there as it appears in a text, on the issue of money. So please understand that. It just happened to be the luck of the draw that you would come today, but I also believe in that that the Lord brought you here, regardless of what you might think about all of that. So take that in uh, the spirit that it's intended, and understand that our heart here at Faith is to bring you into the fullness of God's wise counsel for life in order to get the most from it, and uh, not to see what you can do for the church. This past week, my readings through the Bible just happens to land me in the book of Psalms. I had no intention of using a psalm as the introduction for the message today from the Old Testament prophets of Haggai and Malachi, but I believe the Lord wanted me to do so. We begin Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth in their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This psalm begins with directing our attention to a place of awe. David was the writer of this psalm, and David, as he's writing it, is writing because he's been smitten by the creative power of the Almighty. There is perspective to be gained by, first and foremost, seeing our holy creator, our heavenly God, as the gigantic God that he is, so that when we are being overwhelmed by the minuscule, everyday realities of life, hopefully we won't become engulfed by them. Rather, instead, we will be engulfed by the immensity of the God who calls us friend. But after verse 6, there's this really abrupt shift in the content of the psalm. The first half of this psalm shows us the God of creation. He's immense and, in a sense, 
He's somewhat impersonal and distant from the creation. But then we get to the second half of the psalm. And it shows us the personal, involved God who knows every hair on our head. The narrative moves from God's unilateral act in speaking forth the universe to speaking forth his divine counsel to us for all things pertaining to life and godliness, according to Second Peter 1.3. The first half is all about God as creator. Let's look at the second half. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Not there is great burden, but there is great reward. And I see, after having read this, and I was sitting there thinking about this, there's this intentional juxtapositioning of verses 1 through 6 and 7 through 11 as far as their content. And what we're seeing here is the difference between the power of God, which is greater than anything, and the personality of God disseminating wisdom to his creation for the purpose of successful living. Meaning, that in keeping God's counsel in the daily grind and ordering our lives according to his take on life, not ours, there is great reward. And this reward here refers not only to the hereafter, to eternal life, but right here, right now. But this life of ours, it's hard at times, duh. It's impossible, which is why we must keep our gaze on that mighty, all-powerful God who, as creator, is in unlimited in his resources, as he reminds another psalmist by the name of Asaph in Psalm chapter 50. This is what we read in verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, says the Lord, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. This is the God who tells us to trust him and even to put him to the test, as you're going to hear. Now, last week in the second part of this series, I set forth my reasons for believing that the tithe we see observed in the Old Testament is still God's very best counsel for today's New Testament followers of Christ. If you have signed up for the membership classes or you are planning to do so, we have eliminated a full uh, week, a full week of teaching from three down to two weeks based on your hearing these three messages. In other words, if you're going to sign up for those classes and become a member, we want you to be sure to listen to all three of these. So if you missed last week's or the week before, they're all available online at our website where you can listen to them online. You can burn a CD. You can make an MP3 file. And if you don't have a computer or you're not computer savvy, let us know, and we will put a CD of this series into your hands. 
when understood properly, when lived properly, giving to the Lord's work is fun. And I mean that in all sincerity. If we go back to part one in this mini-series, which was the last message that I gave from the book of Philippians, Paul set forth two extremely important caveats in becoming the kind of giver that the Lord wants us to be. The first one was learning to be content, whether we are in a time of abundance or whether we happen to be in a time of need. And I noted last week that this doesn't seem to be one of the natural characteristics of a people from a culture like ours that has never known anything but extravagant bounty. In Philippians, Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, then states what he says is the secret to living contentedly. In verse 13 of Philippians 4, he writes, The secret is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This verse, for all of its many derivative applications, is expressly about being contented in every situation of life such that we can give what is his due regardless. Giving our resources to the Lord's work on earth is not supposed to be just a sort of a, you know, a clenching of the fists and, and a, a, an act of a strong will where through gritted teeth and painful grimaces we let go of all what is the Lord's. Somebody once said that it's easier to, he learned the hard way, that it's easier to just kind of unclench your fist and let go rather than having God unclench your fist for you. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 9, verse 7, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. But what's the purpose for Paul penning that particular verse? Well, we have to look at the verse right before it. It is that God puts his own divine stamp, if you will, on a principle concerning giving, which God puts Again, his stamp on as a principle to be carried through. Here's what it is. The principle is, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The bottom line is that your heart has to be in the right place for whatever you give and whenever you give. You see, God hasn't imposed this rule to make us miserable he has imposed it and imposed it thousands of years ago as a proper expression of thankfulness thankfulness for the amazing godness of god as we read in psalm 19 and he's given it as an act of worship giving financially to his eternal purposes on earth that will give the worshiper real joy And so now I'm going to leave both the psalm and the book of Philippians, brand spanking new material, as I shift gears to bring in what I believe are two eminent principles derived from God's experience with his people over the years. The prophet, by the name of Haggai, gives words to God's people, and they are more of an illustration than they are words of instruction. The instruction, you see, had been given in all of the years preceding the people of Haggai's day, but God chose to record them for the ages, and God does not waste space. 
So there's a reason why he recorded this particular event to be remembered through all time. So taken on balance, while it is a time-specific occurrence that we're going to be reading about, Haggai demonstrates a timeless principle. If this isn't true, then I cannot tell you why we even bother with the Old Testament as New Testament Christians. But the statement is true. The setup for Haggai is that God wanted the temple, his dwelling place on earth for the ritual services of worship. God wanted the temple to be rebuilt. We're told that in verse 2. But I want you to remember the significance of the temple in the Old Testament. The Old Testament temple was where God's people went. They had to go to worship God because God had not given his Holy Spirit en masse as he did once Jesus rose from the dead, accomplishing all that he had to do. You remember Jesus before he rose, he said that when he leaves, then the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, the Parakletos, will be sent and disseminated to all believers so that we have God now dwelling within us. But in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. So they had to go to where God delineated, which was his house or the temple, in order to worship him in spirit and in truth. This is what we read in the book of Haggai, verses 1 and 2. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, you have to understand that God, 16 years prior to this, had told his people to get along with rebuilding the temple that lied in ruins. And they started. They started, but then it came to a halt. Why? Well, we'll see why pretty quickly. Then the word of the Lord, verses 3 through 5, came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What is not really understood by us non-Hebrew speaking people is that the reference there to paneled houses is a Hebraism for a situation of extravagance, of luxury. In other words, the places that they were building were not simply shelters, domiciles, okay, reasonable homes. They were decking them out, man, and they were putting on the additions before the house was even finished. And they were using the finest materials and the quality and all. And that is why the building of God's house came to a halt, because they couldn't afford it. And God is telling them, so, Really? You're telling me the time has not come? Consider your ways. You know what? When the creator of the universe breaks through your heart and your spirit and says, consider your ways, can I tell you, you better consider your ways. (laughs) Again, remember that the temple had been started 16 years earlier. But there was this big problem. They didn't have the resources to continue work. 
So they determined that, nah, it wasn't time to start. What's the problem? Verse 6. God says, you've sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there isn't enough to be satisfied. Well, they had some food. They drink, or you drink, but there isn't enough to become drunk. And don't misunderstand this, okay? God isn't justifying or encouraging drunkenness. Quite the contrary. Remember, the Bible interprets the Bible. What he was saying was, you are living on the edge with the bare necessities of life because you are abusing me. And so you've got food, but just barely enough and not even enough to be satisfied. You've got plenty of grapes on the vine to have just enough wine to drink. But if you wanted to become drunk, you couldn't even become drunk. And he says, and you put on clothing, and yet no matter how much you put on, boy, we can relate to that this past winter, but no one is warm enough, not even my schnauzer. We just got him shorn after a long winter, and under that blanket he has on his vest. And you can see him. <laughs> so I took the picture. Isn't he stinking cute? He's, he's, I'm convinced he's there praying, saying, Lord, bring the warm weather, please. Our sin impacts all of creation. Okay, that's a stretch, but hey. And God says, and he who earns, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. You know what my parents used to accuse me of when I was a child? You know, right, you go out, you just wash somebody's car, you got a few bucks it's in your pocket, and right away, Mom, can I go to the store? Uh-huh, yeah. The money's burning a hole in your pocket, isn't it, son? Yeah, whatever. What's going on here? Again, God wanted them to be building his temple that they had started so many years ago. But what happened is they allowed themselves to be overrun with their own self-absorbed desires and priorities of life. Now, this isn't one of those moments or periods of apostasy which were numerous in the people in the God's people's history where they fell away from God altogether and even started worshiping other, other idols and gods and had false religions and all of that. They were still a very religious people. That is, they were still going through the motions of worship. But everything important to God, everything that God wanted was put on hold while they put on the new addition and while they built the new garage to accommodate their second chariot and their spiffy new sand runner. And consequently, they couldn't afford to build the Lord's house. In verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, again, consider your ways. If the Lord says it to you once, and then he says it to you again, you're walking a really thin line. You better regroup about your priorities in life and decide, this God speaking hypothetically, and better decide if it's me that you want to be your God or everything else in your life that is owning you. And there is a not-too-veiled warning here. God says, be wise in what you consider because your financial health is connected to my place in your life. God is plain that their financial well-being, that their satisfaction and their contentment is an extension of the very place that God holds in their lives. Not by what they say, but how in fact they live. Jesus says, 
in Matthew 6.33. Seek first, my life first. Seek first. That means by way of priority, in the grand scheme of your entire life, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. That's a promise. What a great promise. If you need or if you desire a way of measuring your spiritual maturity and your spiritual integrity, Jesus gives us one in Luke chapter 12, and again in the, Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark. He says, here it is, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Through the prophet Haggai, the Lord Almighty, in a sense, is saying the same thing in reverse. Where your heart is, there will your treasure be also, as was certainly the case in Haggai's day. And both of us can see where your hearts are by where your treasure is. Your houses are extravagant, and yet my house lies in ruins. And you say, you just can't give right now to the rebuilding of my house. Isn't it interesting, kind of an axiom of life, that you always have enough for what is important to you, but not enough for what is important to me? There's a divine financial principle of cause and effect here that is established by God himself. And God doesn't, again, God does not give rules to be a pain. He doesn't give principles to diminish our quality of life. In fact, God gives us rules and parameters and boundaries and priorities to enhance our lives. And so he says, consider your ways. Well, what's the solution to their financial frustrations? Their solution was to work harder, work longer, maybe pick up a second job, maybe a third job. But they tried that. God says in verse 8, you want to get your act together, you want to do it right, if you considered your waste properly, then go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. (laughs) The solution, putting this in a less than theologically accurate way, but in a, I think, a way that translates. The solution is, make me happy, because it will make you happy. Verses 9 through 11. I memorized verse 9 when my children were very, very, very little with them together. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, in light of that, because of you, God says, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. This was not coincidental. It was not just a run of bad luck climatologically. I called for a drought on the land. Who? Psalm 19, 1 through 6, the creator of the universe. Why? Because you violated 7 through 11. My counsel for life to you. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. I mean, all bases were covered. Remember, this is an agrarian society. Bring it to ours. And you can say, I have frustrated and I have thwarted your productivity in this, uh, this age of industry, in this age of technology. And I will continue to do so. And here you are wondering why you just can't seem to get ahead. 
their lack of giving, though, wasn't really the problem. Their lack of giving really was a symptom. It was a symptom of a spiritual disease, which is why chapter 2, there's only two chapters in the book of Haggai, deals with the overall heart condition of God's people. And according to verse 17 of chapter 2, God, again, was personally frustrating their efforts, trying to make ends meet, hoping they would, that they would get the message and that they would return to their creator wholeheartedly. And so, verse 17. I'm going to come back to the rest of the story of Haggai at the very end. If we skip the next book, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, we're going to go one book away to the book of Malachi. It's written over a century later. And the revival of sorts that occurred on the prompting of Haggai's words from the Lord about their preoccupation with filling their own barns at the expense of God's work had worn old. And God's people in that cyclical pattern that we not only see in the Old Testament, we see it in our own lives, let's be honest. They once again had lapsed into old patterns. And so we read again the three short chapters in the book of Malachi, which is a rebuke from God again to his people for being his people in name only. You see, they were still religious. They were still going through the mechanical routine, but their mechanical routine of worship was devoid of integrity. It was devoid of spiritual vitality, and it was devoid of a worship-inspiring relationship with the living God. And so through the prophet Malachi, God presents one indictment after another concerning the failings of his people, even while carrying on the pretense that they were being very faithful. The first indictment was their lack of reverence for God by giving God sick or injured or stolen animals that they were to bring for the sacrifices. Ah, oh, they got those wretched sacrifices coming up again, you know. Boy, I got my over here. Uh, tell you, you know what? This one's on his last legs. Yeah, he, he, I don't think we can eat that one. Take that one, give it to the Lord for sacrifice, and offer that one up. But it got worse. The text tells us that they were bored with the very sacrificial system that God gave to cover their sins until their Messiah appeared. Verse 13, you also say, referring to this worship, my, oh, how tiresome it is. And, he says, you disdainfully sniff at it. The burnt offerings, the point of the burnt offerings was the pleasant aroma going up to God as he had stipulated in the worship. It was all symbolic of, of other sorts of things which we can't get into here. But their thing was, take the sick animal, offer it up, and for crying out loud, can't you hurry up and get it done? You know I hate the smell of that nasty burnt offerings. But they were still going through the motions. Second indictment God brings to them. No relevance today whatsoever to this one. Ha! <laughs> The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he, the priest, is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, meaning you and your priests in your day, Malachi, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. 
meaning they had ruined the entire administration of the word that God had given to them. Tell me that is not epidemic in our day among present-day clergy. Indictment number three, the men of God were taking spouses who did not share their same faith. I heard somebody say one time that God was racist and that he didn't permit marriage, you know, outside, you know, the races, etc. Not true. Okay, so get that through your head. Not, not true. Debunk it right away. Say, not true. What God prohibited and still prohibits to this day is somebody who is claiming allegiance to Jehovah in the Old Testament, to Jesus Christ in the New Testament, from becoming unequally yoked and marrying somebody who is of a different faith or of no faith. That is still, that is still a prohibition today. And as a counselor for about 30 years now, with marriage situations, just that kind of situation, I can tell you God is wise in giving such counsel. Fourth indictment, they were dealing treacherously, divorcing their wives. And the fifth indictment, which is the piece de resistance, is that God's people verses 7 through 9 were of chapter 3, were robbing God. And as with every charge that God brings against them, God's people argue with him about it. Verses 8 through 9, God says, Will a man, have you gotten so low and so far from me that a man will rob God? And yet you are robbing me. But you say... What? How have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes and offerings, thereby you are cursed with a curse because you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. But God quickly spells out in the very next verse the remedy. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And this is the only place in all of the Bible where God ever says this. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Put me to the test. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Test me now in this. Meaning real relief or just feeling better about my hunger? No, meaning real relief. Let the word interpret the word, verses 11 and 12. If you bring forth the whole tithe and you correct this atrocity against me by robbing me, then here's what I will do. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, meaning prematurely, and just lie there to rot on the ground, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Meaning, even the natural processes of climatology and the natural processes of vermin and pestilence and disease of vines and all of that, which diminish their take-home pay, so to speak, God will personally intervene and he will rebuke those things. Now, what might that look like? Just one little example. It has looked a lot, oftentimes in our lives, by things just not 
wearing out because we couldn't afford to replace them. One example that just came immediately to my mind as I was doing this message was right now up in our laundry room, we have a an electric dryer. Somebody was asking me, what brand is it? After they heard my story. It's sitting up in our laundry room, and I texted Barb when I thought of it, and I said, "Hun, do you remember if we got that dryer in Seattle or Chicago? She couldn't remember. I'm reasonably certain we got it in Seattle, which means that dryer up there, which we've done nothing to ever, is about 37 years old or so. <laughs> That's why somebody said, what brand is it? It's a Kenmore. But now my brother who repairs appliances in Chicago, everything is made by basically two companies. Buy the service contract when you buy it because they're all junk. But anyway, you know, see the things you learn here at Faith. Anyway, now and this is where I want to bring into the idea of contentment. I have gone up there, actually as recently as yesterday, and took some stuff out of the dryer and put it there and took stuff out of the washing machine put it on racks because we do all that sort of thing. And I was noticing just how, one, old the dryer looks and how, you know, there's little pieces of where paint chipped over the years and rust and that sort of thing on it. But the dryer, the dryer works perfectly. But you know what? There's no digital readouts on it, so it's not cool in that way. I mean, really, you've got this knob that turns like this to the kind of setting you want and then a button that goes off and on. It's really complicated. Okay? There's no cool voice that when it's done comes on and says, your laundry is done. Okay? And we could afford to buy a dryer. But we have seen so many things like that when we could not afford to do such things. And I believe absolutely that that is an example of God rebuking the devourer. There's so many different stories I could give you along these lines just from our lives. And I know that many of you you have shared with me things of a very similar nature. We're not talking here about still going without or the bare, 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 really bare necessities, but feeling good about it. No, God says I'm talking about practical relief here. I'm talking about blessing you in terms of intangible things. I almost said something that I knew I covered last week, so I'm not going to go there. In Haggai's day, we read that God brought the bad weather, that God brought the pestilence and the disease to frustrate the people of Haggai's day's efforts in order to, you know, so that they couldn't get ahead. In Malachi's day, God says he's not going to bring those things. Instead, he is going to personally frustrate even the natural processes like that in a fallen planet where weather and vermin in an agrarian society are extremely blessing or devastation. And he's going to rebuke those things to ensure a bountiful harvest. In Haggai's day, God brings the blights. In Malachi's day, God prevents the blights if they will simply honor God as God and worship him with all they have and all they are. Now, I said I'd go back to Haggai. Let's do that. The people heeded the words of the prophet Haggai. 
They did get their act together, which included cleaning up their lives in general, not just, you know, coming to to grips with the things of what God wanted to bring in the tithes and offerings, but the whole of their lives they got together. And what was the result? Verses 18 and 19. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founder, consider this. Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It is not born fruit. Onward there is confusing to us. But in the Hebrew terminology here, onward can mean that way or onward can mean that way. And in the context, I believe God is saying from this day backwards, I want you to always remember the desolation that you experienced when you never had enough. You didn't have it in your barns. You didn't have the seed to plant, etc., etc., because I want you to remember and not forget. But, he says, from this day forward, yet I will bless you. In closing this morning and in closing this series, I want to read to you, I have had to edit it heavily because I told the person this is very fresh just this past week. It's very fresh, and I told them I would disguise it um, to keep it anonymous. But it brought a huge smile to my face as I was reading it. And what was funny is I got down to the very end of it, and it said, I hope this brings a smile to your face. And I was sitting there like this. Anyway, yeah, just like that. Anyway. We've been tithing for years and only see his blessings more and more. What does this look like? Well, three kids through college, debt-free. And she adds, he adds, we were not able to do this on our own, but somehow God pulled in scholarships and programs and rebates, and they got very specific. Person adds, really bizarre, and only by God's math. We've bought a car and a truck over the past five years from savings with cash. They mentioned receiving an unexpected windfall, and they gave away not 10% of it, but they gave away half of it. And then they got audited by the IRS for their generosity. (laughs) And they said, but even that, too, ended up really being a blessing. (laughs) Even after that nice little windfall was gone, they've continued to give very generously. Well, some time ago, We redid some renovations, and I was really happy to see this because I would have made comment on it anyway. We redid some renovations to our home, which generated some guilt, thinking, ah, extravagance. But the helpmate, my helpmate meaning, shed the light of God on the matter and rightly noted that they had been and continue to be faithful to the Lord. And I would add that they have been faithful to the Lord, like the people in Haggai's day who had all their lives brought into balance, not just that one little segment called giving. God delights, the spouse saying to them, God delights in blessing his people who are faithful because they are faithful, not because they are trying to manipulate God. The writer continues, this is not the prosperity gospel but God at work. Indeed, it is. We never expected these things. We have been able to live in meager circumstances, but now being blessed, I need to relax and realize that this is his blessing and that we continue to live in and through and with him each day, and our home will continue to be a place of blessing to many in him. And I tell you, if you knew who it was, and many of you, maybe most of you, all, maybe all of you would even know them, you'd say, yep, they sure do use their home that way too. And I mention that because over the years, (laughs) 
You know, I mean, I, of course, am not one ever to resort to self-deception, right? I mean, I never lie to myself, right? Okay. So this isn't about me. This is about they, all right? And I always love the stories. You can tell somebody's wrestling with, oh, boy, I don't know, I got this, you know, it's a considerable expenditure. And, uh, okay, it's on a boat, right? I mean, it's just kind of been a lifelong dream. Nothing wrong with owning a boat, okay? So here, just, it's just an example, all right? So, and, I mean, no, we can't pay for it. All right, we'd have to get, a, you know, credit, whatever, you know, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. But you know what? I just, I really believe the Lord wants us to do this because we, get ready for it, we are going to use it for evangelism. <laughs> yeah, I was going to buy a Ferrari one year, honey, to use it for evangelism, you know. And then what happens is they get the boat because they're going to use it for evangelism. And I know, at least up to the time that I knew, and it had been a few years, they had never used it in any way, shape, or form like that. But God enjoys blessing his people. He does. Abraham, for crying out loud, was filthy rich. Do you realize that? Actually, you look at all the patriarchs in the Old Testament, they were filthy rich. Remember, it's not money, right? I don't, right, the scripture is what? Money is the root of all evil. No, 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 no. The love of money is the root of all evil. And there's the issue. This family obviously was not in love with their money. They were free to give it away. And they joyfully gave it away. And it was fun to give it away. And God was pleased to still bless them. And they don't need to wring their hands about, jeez, oh, you know what? Because you know what you can always do? You can always play this game. Even if we didn't get the uh, the new renovation or whatever it was, our kids are all grown now and they're moving. We don't need all this space. Let's downsize. And then you downsize to something. Then you go, you know what? We don't really need all that. really. And by the time you get done, you're looking at a yurt. Right? You know what a yurt is? That's those round, you know, nomadic tent types things. And then even with the yurt, you go, I don't know. It's lined with some mighty fancy material. It's insulating. And maybe that's it. See, you can always play that game. So that's not the issue. God wants us to give not reluctantly or under compulsion because he loves a cheerful giver. And he says, you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I will take care of everything else. And this isn't a sleazy commercial, but if you have not read my book, The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity, you need to. I seriously mean that. It is theologically profound, it is precise, and it is filled with a whole life of actual situations that happens and happen to Barbara and I as examples of the truth and veracity of God's word. I'm going to ask Don Cole to come on up and close this out. Second Chronicles 16.9, another verse that I memorized with my children when they were very little. One of my favorite verses, Old Testament. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the ends of the earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. I just love that picture. You see God, you know, anthropomorphically speaking, his eyes just roving, looking, looking. Oh, there's somebody who's really faithful to me. Now watch what I am going to do. And as soon as that person has a thought or any person has the thought, I'm going to do this to get God's attention so that he will, you know where God's eyes are going? They're going somewhere else. 
Because now your heart's corrupt and it stinks, and he doesn't want it, doesn't need it. I'm telling you, giving is fun. Giving is honestly fun. Thank you. What a setup. Uh, yesterday, uh, the day before yesterday, I opened uh, a free app, the uh, Google Earth thing, and just glancing at the, the terms that you have to accept, it says Google Earth needs access to your stuff. <laughs> so we're not a people of stuff, but we are people with stuff. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for uh, your word and for its instruction and for your your man, Lord, who has delivered it to us this morning. More importantly, Lord, we pray with thankfulness for your spirit that makes application. We pray, Lord, that we would hold back no stuff uh, from you, that we would give access to you or we're at least wanting, Lord, to be your stewards. So bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.